Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, my adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I have Jay Vidyarthi. He is an intention activist and founder of Still Ape, the world's first UX design studio focused exclusively on mindfulness compassion, and well-being. He is working towards a society where access points to self-care and collective transformations are as diverse as the people who need them. He also teaches mindfulness to individuals and groups where he inspires people to reclaim their freedom of attention in our culture of influence. So without any further delay, I would like to welcome Jay. Hey. How you hey, doing? brother. Hey, man. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. I, uh, yes, I, it's going to be fun. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I love all the work you do. Um, all for like, how do we use this technology to help people get better? How do we how do we use this technology to not disconnect and separate, but to connect to ourselves and connect to the world? Those things are very much uh, the topic of this, and then lessons and stories and insights to inspire other people to be the heroes of their own story. So uh, that's why I felt a lot of resonance when I've seen some of the work that you've done. Um, but first, I'd love to start off with. Like, how did you get into founding the Still Ape Studio? Like, what was the what was the journey leading up to that point? Yeah, I mean, I just love to hear the topic that you're. I mean, this is so close to my heart, so I feel yeah. like I'm with like minded people. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a journey. It's been like you know, I was. Uh, let's start from first principles. Like some of the early experiences I had growing up. I was a gamer growing up, so I was into technology. I was tinkering with like the computers my dad had brought home and mm. early game consoles. Also had, you know, people with severe mental health issues in my close family. So at a very young age was like, whoa, there's different ways to be in the world and there's different states of mind. And I saw that as an incredibly important dimension. And that kind of led me to get into school uh, where, <laughs> you know, my traditional my parents immigrated from India. So they were like, go into engineering, be a doctor. It's a typical Indian kind of immigrant <laughs> narrative. Cause, yeah. and I love them for it because that's what, where they grew up. If you don't have a serious professional degree, you're never going to get out because that's all that's going to be taken seriously. But then as I kind of got older, I, I followed their advice to an extent, but as I got older, I realized actually here in Canada, I have different opportunities. So I started to chase my passion for psychology and cognitive oh, science cool. and neuroscience was interested in psychology from a psychotherapy angle for a while, but ultimately I found in there this application of psychology to designing technology. So creating technology that is well adapted to the people it's trying to serve. I did that for a couple of years as a consultant for any project, anyone who'd pay website design and you know early app design, things like that. And then I kind of had this like light bulb moment where I said, can I find a more fulfilling path with this, these technology skills, these design skills by applying it. So not like psychology in service of technology, but technology in service of psychology. Mm. So can we actually find a way to use this technology? And so pretty early on, given our current timeline, was researching some of this stuff in a laboratory, had a successful academic project called Sonic Cradle at the intersection of mindfulness and technology springboarded that to help launch Muse the Brain Sensing Headband, which is a pretty, it's a category leader in transformative technology. It's an EEG headband. I have one here somewhere. Yeah, here. Yeah. It's an EEG headband you wear on your head, measures your brain, sends information to an app where you can track your meditation practice. So I was in charge of designing the user experience for that thing. 
And then from there, the space started to explode. Like I was doing this because I thought it was just my own journey, but the space started to explode. Meditation apps showed up, Headspace showed up, more money started to pouring into this. So I started finding more avenues to have an impact as a sort of technologist focus on mindfulness, mental health, and well-being. And then, you know, in the in the past couple of years, having enough opportunity in this space to have an impact that I could start to bring junior designers on, start to bring on a team to sort of guide, uh, you know, these UX and technology skill sets in service, not of manipulating our attention, selling ads, maximizing screen time, but in service of mindfulness, compassion, awareness, being present, being authentically connected, not just likes on a screen. So that's where we are now. And it's, it's you know, we're still on this journey, but we really do believe that the potential for technology applied to something greater than just organization, productivity, and efficiency is our future. It's a ne necessary future for our species, to be frank. Yeah, you're 100% right on that in terms of we created like a lot of this civilization and the industrial era and all this stuff to like be more productive. And at some point we forgot that like people think that we're thinking machines that feel, but we're really feeling machines that created thinking as a way to get to that. And we've kind of had this weird thing where we forgot that we, <laughs> we like people, we like to be connected and we like to, we like to share and feel a depth of, of connection. Can, one of the things I'm very interested in is you've, there's this paradox is a lot of the social media that we have out there currently creates depression and it makes us feel isolated and alone versus one of those authentic, deeper connections. Can you talk to me about like designing around, like, how do you, how do you connect people in a way that doesn't create that sense of depression? How do you connect people to have more of that authentic, fulfilling ones versus uh, comparative depleting? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. And like, we need to be really surgical in how we talk about this. So first of all, I just want to say, you know, there are some early studies that link social media use, mm. uh, specifically like Facebook's newsfeed and certain yeah. other social media interfaces with increasing symptoms of depression. We don't have enough science to be conclusive about that and to be, you know, so let's just be yeah. clear about that. That being said, as much as part of my brain wants to be you know, have that scientific integrity and to just check our level of confidence about those findings. Mm -hmm. I also believe that we can't wait for science to catch up to what we're experiencing in our lives. So you take those early signs of what the science is showing mm -hmm. and you take what a lot of us are experiencing. Like, I don't necessarily feel great when I spend the day on Facebook. And it starts to point to a direction of changes in our own life, but also motivating more science to study this so that we can get more conclusiveness on this. So just want to be clear about that. Now, when it comes to how to design those solutions, I mean, the first thing is, let's point to some examples, right? So I've worked on a project, uh, this wonderful founder, Amy Gidden, has worked on this thing called Daily Haloha. It's a social media interface that you only interact with once a day. It asks you a question once a day. It's anonymous. There's no likes or competition. In, in a lot of ways, it looks like a social media. There's, there's like a feed, but somehow I just feel when I use it uplifted and there's almost no way to get hooked on it. Like once you do your daily interaction, you can't look at it anymore. So that's a great example. Another example, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Another example is another startup that's coming up called Warm Space um, out of this guy, Edric, who's, who's from uh, Singapore. I've had him on the podcast. You've had Edric on the podcast. Okay, so you know him. So Warm Space is another example where you take an interface like the one we have right now, a video call, 
you bring in some kind of facilitated introductions, you bring in some exercises of shared connection and shared presence. And then maybe what I'll do is a, a third thing is, I'll, you know, I'm in a, a mindfulness practice and I have a lot of community members who practice mindfulness. And a lot of teachers and practitioners are realizing that meditating in a group is surprisingly possible over Zoom. Like I've heard this over and over again that like, there's a lot amazing about going to the mountain and meditating in some monastery, but a lot of teachers are like, there's also something amazing about like meditating in the context of your life, you know, like your kid is sleeping in the other mm -hmm. room and you're connecting with community. So first of all, let's just use all those examples to say it is possible to have social media that are actually uplifting and inspiring and, and a benefit to our well-being. Now, the question you asked though, how do you design it? Mm. If I had to give you the short answer, I would say incentives. The accidental unintended consequences of a lot of our problematic social media come from very simplified incentives. For example, the YouTube recommendation algorithm or the Facebook newsfeed, mm. these are interfaces designed to maximize clicks, maximize screen time, you know, maximize likes and subscribes. And they use everything in their power at these simple incentives. So the question becomes, how do we structure teams around incentives that have more to do with actual feelings of connection, not just connection on a screen, the number of friends you have versus real close relationships of people you can trust? Mm -hmm. How do we incentivize positive benefits in mental health? How do we incentivize you know, well-being insight, a sense of self-understanding and reflection, space, intention, purpose, right? So I think the code is to, to structure teams that are very skilled around incentives that really kind of speak to some of the deeper needs. I like to say we want to create technologies that helps people be who they want to become, not who their like instinctive habit loops lead them to being. Like on a Sunday afternoon, when you set your intention for the week, that's different from like it's Thursday and you're just like drowning in tasks. So that's kind of like the way I think about it. I like that. There's a lot around the focus of people sometimes make these, I've noticed this, like you, you have a good intention, a principle, right? And then people make laws underneath those principles to follow those. And then clever monkeys or people find ways to usurp the actual principle, and, but stay to the letter of the law, not to the mm -hmm. spirit of the law, but to the letter of the law. The same type of thing is like, oh, we want to connect the planet. We want to make a great thing. And then the, but then there's like this sub conversation of what well, we want to maximize revenue. Okay, well, well, we're going to maximize revenue, not necessarily so everybody feels good, but to the point where there it's it's whatever drives them. So if it's if it's getting uh if it's bringing your ex girlfriend to the top of the feed because she got a new boyfriend, you know that kind of thing is it. <laughs> yeah. it that's, but that's it. But that's the but ah but that works. It's an effective system, right? Yeah. But there's but we lose that piece. The so same thing with um. You know, we're in a, we're in a capitalist society, but sometimes mm -hmm. this, we abstract the money like that. We we don't look at the actual true cost of something. We only take a look at the monetary value, but not the cost that happened along the way, whether it's the suffering yeah. or pain or whatever, whatever gets created along that path. So it's like, how, yeah, how do you take that more holistic incentivization look beyond just the dollar and cents to, to actually say, because something has to be it has to be a functional business, because one of the challenges that you have is this is for these for a lot of these conscious um, entrepreneurs is that they want to make something that's, that's, that benefits humanity, but they don't know how to make a functional business work. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, so blending together a situation that is something that is conscious and aware and mindful, but then also a sustainable, profitable business, I think it's one of those, those apex challenges that people come across. Have you, yeah. have you seen that kind of issue along the way and how to, how to mitigate that as one side or the other? 
Yeah, I mean, that is, that's the sandbox that we're playing in with all, almost all of our partners. It's still like, we, we're all trying to figure out that, you know, maintain our integrity, maintain our vision while creating something sustainable that grows. And there are things in the world that have achieved that. And so it is definitely possible. I think the mistake that we often make as human beings, like to speak to your point, mm -hmm. is we oversimplify a problem for tractability and then we forget that it was an oversimplification and we scale. So for example, you know, you use that example of social, you know, social media mm -hmm. where it's like, hey, I, I firmly believe and people can disagree with me. I firmly believe a lot of the founders of these social media companies were truly trying to connect the world. They had very positive intentions, said, hey, we can connect the world with this technology. Let's give it a try. And then as they start to build it out, well, then you start to get a simplification of these connections. Well, the number of friends you have is like your connection on the network mm. and the number of likes shows the amount of engagement. So now you have this like mathematical model of connection. Person A is connected to person B is connected to person C. There's a lot of likes here. So there's a strong connection. And then we forget that this doesn't necessarily mean true connection. We're using it as a proxy with that assumption that person A and B and C are actually connecting in a deep way. And then we're like, okay, well then our mission is now clear. We just have to scale up the number of connections. We have to scale up the number of likes. Let's hire some engineers. Let's build some algorithms. Let's do it. And then here we are where the likes are more than they've ever been. The connections are more than they've ever been. The number of followers are more than they've ever been. But we somehow lost true, deep, authentic connection on the way. <laughs> but the one thing I'll challenge you in yeah. is like, I'm actually like, I think we are good at this because... I honestly look, I look around and the conversation is changing, right? Like humanity works in kind of long swaths, like generation by generation. And I look at my peers and I look at the partners that I work with that I'm super inspired by. And I, you know, I look at the kids today. I've had some chance to work with today's teenagers and stuff like that. Like most people are pretty aware that social media is getting toxic, right? Most people are pretty aware you know, that there's something that needs to be done there, you know, at least in the this kind of bubble of technology. I don't mean everyone. I mean, the technologist conversation. And so there's a lot of thought and a lot of effort in podcasts like yours going into changing the conversation. Now, do I wish it happened quicker? Yes, but <laughs> yeah. I am optimistic that we are able to address this and that we are finding new ways forward. We always want it faster. We want it quicker, faster, easier, better. I want, I want but in to, some way, I, that's how we got into this situation. Yeah. Right? I, I want diet and exercise by taking a pill. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it, it's weird because humans, we, we, I, one of the, my beliefs is like truth is really holding polar opposites. Like the true truth is holding polar opposites in your head at the same time. Mm -hmm. So do we want the quick and easy solution that's the easiest for us? And do we love the feeling we get after we challenge ourselves and do something super hard and grow ourselves and view ourselves as being the heroes of our own story? Yes, we want yeah. both of those things at the same time. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. So, yeah. and so I agree. Uh, and we are, we're, there's this cultural shift. It's like, there's there's the macro and micro where you have like the 80s, Gordon Gecko, greed is good, that kind of stuff, right? And it, and then we're kind of now, now they're trying to, there's all these complaints about these, um, these young kids that you can't get them to take jobs and things like that because they want meaning and purpose and they don't want to be tied down. And you can see that there's like this, this cyclical cycle that's, that is happening. And we are becoming more aware. It's just the, uh, you know, it's the, are we, it's a race between utopia and disaster. And can we, can we push the needle into the other area, um, uh, to, to, to kind of edge it this other way. Um, and, uh, 
And I, th I think some of the good work that you're doing is is trying to push the needle in, in those, those kinds of um, areas. Uh, with that being said, like what for you, like what do you think are like the big like if you could wave a couple of magic wands around and be like, hey, th this is what I'd, I would love to see humanity adopt, not necessarily like a brand or a product or a thing, but overall like um, activities or habits or uh, principles or rules, what would you love to see humanity adopt as a, as a concept to kind of help us uh, move this, uh, this needle along faster? You know, a long time ago when I started meditating and it started to have a really positive impact, I would have answered this question by saying, like, everyone needs to meditate. <laughs> and then I kind of like rebounded on that. And I was like, wait a minute, people are very diverse and people have different needs and not everyone needs to meditate. Uh -huh. Like people have different ways of finding their way, um, different ways of finding awareness and finding balance. And now I'm at this point where I'm like, you know, most people probably could benefit from practicing mindfulness in one way or another. And there are exceptions but whether it's like practicing while you walk around, where you go for a walk or whether it's journaling or something like that. But here's why I say that. It's not because some blanket statement like everyone meditate. And this is where you get into kind of the thesis of like kind of what drives me, which is in this world that we're living in, we are seeing a fragmentation of attention. Mm -hmm. Since about 100 and 150 years ago, as the marketers of us started figuring out how to manipulate each other's attention towards causes, and that system got better and better, we created uh, an economy that is based on hoarding as much attention as possible. Like brands, advertisements, podcasts, YouTube channels, blogs, whatever it is, even guided meditations, like no one is free of this. The more views you have, the more impact you have, the more potential profit you have, that's how the economy is running, especially in the digital sphere. You know. Obviously, social media is a great example of this, but also content online. It's all about attention. Mm. One of the challenges with this is as a human being living your life, you are now living in a absolute battleground of attention where literally everything you interact with is aggressively competing to capture some of your mind share. And don't get me started about political parties and that kind of media, right? Like we can go deep into like the implications of this for our society. But anyway, Mm -hmm. this, the tactics being used are getting more and more extreme, right? I like to say that, you know, advertisements, for example, are designed to target your desires, your insecurities, and your fears. Either they're stoking your fears about something, they're playing up and resonating your desires for something, or they're targeting your insecurities. Like I saw this ad for an airline recently, and it had like a arm with like a all you could see was an arm, but it was like a, a, an older man's arm with like an Armani suit and like a Rolex watch. And it had some statement. And I was like, it, was, it struck me that like this image has nothing to do with flights. It has something <laughs> to do with like a class of people yeah. that are associated with this flight. It's kind of like, you know, as Jerry Seinfeld put it, like if you work a little harder, you can book a flight on this. Like it's targeting your insecurities of like yeah. your success and career. Anyway, all that being said, you go back into the history of various contemplative practices, whether from any of the Abrahamic religions or the Eastern religions, all this stuff that we're starting to explore from a scientific perspective around mindfulness and compassion and insight. What you see is a huge impact and a huge training paradigm around attention. You're learning how to pay attention in specific ways on purpose and non-judgmentally and with clarity 
and with concentration, but also with balance. And so the, my whole thesis of the work that I do and the reason I'm so passionate about it that I can come on a podcast and rant like this is because I believe that mindfulness is no longer just about spirituality or well-being. It still is those things, but now it's a form of activism because we live in a world that is constantly trying to harvest your mind. So taking a few minutes out of your day or a few days out of your week or you know, going on week-long retreat or something, you're actually cultivating skills to resist the battleground of attention in the world around you. You are, you are quite literally making a subversive act in an attention economy when you sit there and do nothing but practice and train your ability to pay attention. So to me, mindfulness yeah. is is, part, is like a huge part of the answer to your question. Maybe sitting and meditating yeah. is, the, is your access point. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's something else. But if it's something that intentionally tries to cultivate your ability to be okay with things the way they are while also cultivating and choosing what you pay attention to, it's it's a huge benefit. And, and it goes for how we interact with technology as well, applying those skills. That's super interesting. Yeah, the one thing that popped in my head when you were talking about that was uh, I've always struck by Abercrombie and Fitch's uh, displays of shirtless men for clothing. <laughs> yeah. I always thought that was really interesting. I'm like, there's, you're, there's no clothes on this guy's body and this is a clothing store. I always found that to be super interesting, um, and yeah. to that to that fact because that's what they're that's what they're, they're selling desires. And, yeah, you know that kind of. If you wear my clothes, you'll look like the shirtless guy, which is interesting. Um, well, and you associate yourself because, like you said, everyone wants to like get fit in a pill. Yeah. So it's so much easier to buy an Abercrombie shirt than it is to spend the like every day in the gym that that guy probably spent <laughs> to get his body to look like that. It's much easier to buy a shirt. So it's it's, it's really tricky. You know, it's easier to you know have a statue of the Buddha than meditate every day. It's easier to wear a cross around your neck than forgive someone. You know, it's like we're always looking for these simple identity-based ways to project as opposed to be who we want to become. And I think that's like, yeah. to, to go back to your question, I'm glad you brought that up because to go yeah. back to your question, yeah, around the world, if there's one thing we could adopt, it's about actually finding space in our day to cultivate a state of, um, okayness and a state of choice on how we spend our day, not just going from Netflix to phone to Netflix to hunger to fast food to phone to Netflix to social media to Facebook, but actually carving out that space to be like, it's okay. Like to me, that's activism now. Like that's a, that's a, a different kind of picket sign that you're holding up. I never thought about it as activism. That's so interesting, though, because you're right. We live in an attention economy right now. It's something that, like, if you if you have the eyeballs, you are that is the that is the attention is the true value because it's time, the time of your attention. And if you don't mm -hmm. have if you if if you don't have that, then you actually have no actual inherent value, kind of thing. And and I never thought about it as, as activism because you're right because there's a competition for it. And if you can find a way to say I'm not playing this game. I'm going to be doing this instead. And this is what I stand for. And you're voting. Don't vote because people say vote with your dollars. But instead, you're voting with your eyeballs. You're voting with your with your headspace or headspace. Mm -hmm. but you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, didn't mean to your say attention. product. Uh, yeah, yeah. An actual yeah. product name. But like voting with a, yeah, the attention. It's a really powerful concept um, uh, that, that a lot of people can take on. What do you think in terms of, you know, if there's people that are that are getting into this like let's say there's someone that wants to get into creating mindfulness apps or any of these other types of uh products because they're like i believe in this uh, <laughs> and the irony of i'm going to make something 
and I get going to get people's attention to get them away from other attention. What do you think are some typical like threshold guardians or what do you think are some typical errors that people make when they first get started into some of these types of spaces to try to, to try to do, um, uh, create these types of products? So I think the biggest mistake that individuals make as well as people mm -hmm. who work in products and technology is they underestimate their own power. That as individuals, we yeah. have the power to choose how to spend our day. And it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but we really do. And so with technologists, especially junior technologists joining these companies, working on these products, we tend to think like, listen, this is how the product is. This is how it was. And this is how it's made. And sometimes we have to kind of toe the company line, especially when we're starting out in our career. We got to build those skills. We got to build that reputation. But very quickly, you find yourself in a position you know, where you have some influence and some say. And that's where you have to remember that your KPIs or your OKRs or whatever you're doing to track your progress don't all. <laughs> I think I wrote an article about this and I said, like, your OKRs, your KPIs, or your WTFs. Because, like, there's just a whole, <laughs> there's like a whole three, three, three letter acronym, like, corporate jargon that goes jargon. on. They're really useful tools. But if you look at most of the objectives, however you formalize them, Mm -hmm. for you know yourself as a professional or working in technology, working in a company, they all tend to be really quantitative and metrics driven. They're always like, get this many users to click on this many buttons, get this many dollars, have this many sales or whatever. And I think one of the first things I challenge people to do is start where you are. You don't have to just like mm -hmm. quit your job and go to Costa Rica and become a yoga teacher or something. <laughs> but like start where you are and say, can I negotiate that one of my KPIs or OKRs? is something a little more heartfelt about what I believe as a creator in this world. Like whether you're a designer or a marketer or an entrepreneur or whatever it is, like, hey, I think we need to increase our users by this. We need to increase sales by this. And my third one is like, I think we need to like make sure that people are feeling authentically well or authentically connected using our social media platform or, mm -hmm. you know, not getting into sort of unhealthy loops using our fitness platform or whatever it is. And then you start to force you, yourself and your team to operationalize. How do we find out an answer to that question? And it leads to not only getting clarity on like whether we're staying true to our values, um, but it also leads to like research methods and, you know, human-centered design approaches that actually mm -hmm. make everything better. It's a win-win situation for the organization, the product, and for you as an individual. Mm. Yeah, I mean, OKRs, KPIs. I mean, if people don't know that, that those are all terminologies for setting metrics and goals and plannings. There's the key results indicators. There's the uh, yeah. OKRs, which are objectives, measurements, or what was it key objectives, something like that. Key but results. These are key results. Thank you, key results. And so, yeah. and so, just anybody that just heard the jargon that may not know what those acronyms are for us, I, I get, I know those sounds, but uh, it, it's a way to humans are interesting in the way that. We're not very good at long form planning, like just like off the cuff in our head, like, you know, have like these things laid out. So a process or a method that allows people to kind of look at it and say, okay, these are my goals. But one of the challenges is keeping that humane sensation or that humanity while planning these long-term visions and goals is a, is mm. a critical thing that most people, cause you're talking about cause just revenue or just eyeballs or just clicks versus uh, do I feel like I'm a good person? Do I, am I gaining confidence in myself? There's, there's these, whether well, they're not yeah, necessarily. I, mean, I would, I would tie, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I would just like, yeah, tie it's, cool. like it's, it's often, it's like, 
you'd be surprised how much like your your larger company mission already says this. Like it, it's not a new ingredient. Like if you go read the charter of the company you work for, I'm speaking to those of us that are working for big companies, but it's like, you know, you go to like Airbnb and their mission is to like increase the world's belonging. Like it's all soft, fluffy, beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. The problem is we don't, we're not very good at operationalizing that. So when you add your KPI, you're not just like some subversive. You're like, no, I'm tying this to our corporate mission here, but I actually want to go interview people and see if they feel like they belong at our Airbnbs, right? Like, let's say Dylan, you and I, yeah. Yeah. let's say right now we decided to start mm-hmm. a dating app, right? And you and I sat down and we were like, let's figure this out, right? And like, yes, we need to have a certain amount of people that are on the platform that are having dates. We need to have a certain amount of connections made. But I might add KPIs like, do people feel like less lonely? How many people like got married as a result of this app? You know, how many real relationships were created out of this app? You know what I mean? Like, let's add a few of these metrics that are also operationalizable, but actually speak to our deeper values here. Because we don't just want a bunch of people going on first dates, I'm assuming. If, if that is the goal, that's fine too. But I'm just like, I'm assuming that we want to have relationships being built. So we have to make sure we're operationalizing that. I think that's like, a little bit of the problem that some of the tech giants of our, like the previous generation a few decades ago, companies started then, is all of the operationalization was purely metrics driven without some of this like important mission and values driven stuff as a part of their performance and measurement structure. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're totally on point. These, these meaningful metrics that actually link back from and that making that chasm of, of just the, the the fluffy feel good to an actually oper- operationalizing the actual metrics behind it. By the way, whenever you talk about making a dating app, I just how many friends of my single guy friends they're like, I wish I had like like a Tinder app, but like I got all of the hits, like it all went to me. <laughs> And I just like, it just keeps swiping. It just land on me. I'm like, there's so many, like every like a guy's like coming like, oh, you do design work. I'm thinking about doing a dating app, but it's just, it's basically self-serving myself yeah. just because I don't want to play this game of effort, you know? Um, but you're, yeah. you're, you're right. It's, 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 it's a deeper, more human centered question to ask. And, and I want to unpack a little bit of this uh, human-centered design for people that don't know what it is. But could you please explain just a little bit of, you know, what is human-centered design to you? And, and how does that actually look on a day-to-day basis? So human-centered design is this terminology that's come up from, I think it originated with uh, Stanford and IDEO. And it's been incorporated in a number of different methodologies and approaches Uh, It's also been appropriated for exploitation, in my opinion, so you have to be careful with it. Um, But the reality is the word human-centered design, the idea is let's put the human being that we're trying to serve at the center of our design process. So it's very obvious in a tech company, you can see many design processes that are focused on the technology or they're focused on the intervention or the science or the company, everything except the individual we're trying to serve. But the human-centered design process is basically saying, Let's figure out who exactly we're trying to serve with this project. Let's put them at the center of every step we take. And so what we do at Still Ape for a lot of our partners is we help people clarify exactly who it is they're trying to serve. We show them methods to actually invite and recruit representatives of those people who are unbiased, not their friends and their buddies, but people they've never never heard of what they're doing and orchestrate different methods to ideate and brainstorm and come up with ideas and then vet them and test them and observe people interacting with those ideas all before you start building. And that's like, you know, speaks to kind of maybe two of the big mistakes that a lot of tech companies make. One of the mistakes is they get really excited and they fall in love with their first idea. 
they're like, you know what, a dating app that everyone comes to me. That's a great idea. Let's start building it. Let's hire some engineers and we're going to start building it. And it's not really fully thought through. And by the time they realize the problems, if you, if you use an architectural metaphor, they've already built half the house and they're like, we forgot to leave space for a bathroom. Oh, now we have to tear down the house and rebuild it. Whereas if you're still doing it on the blueprint stage, it's easy to make those changes. The second big mistake is that people, they, they write the code too early. They're so eager to build, they forget the blueprinting stage and that you can actually clarify your target audience. You can invite them to the table. You can have them vet your work. You can have them use prototypes of what you're thinking before writing a single line of code. And so these are some of the really valuable, there's many, but some of the really valuable core insights to human-centered design that transforms the way we design and, and work on products and services in a way that maximizes the potential impact, the potential success, and also minimizes the upfront um, you know, false investment or, or failed investment from the company side. So it's, it's a really successful paradigm and we've just seen it work time and time again. So that's kind of what we do. We're just like preaching the gospel of human-centered design. And I like to think of it sometimes, one more piece, uh -huh. I like to think of it sometimes as humanity-centered design because the way that I think about it is the human-centered design piece feels a little bit like me, 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 or like just about the individualist perspective. Mm. But when I say humanity-centered design, I'm thinking about the individual as a member of a community and a society and a collective and a world. And that brings in elements of the environment and the economy and the collective good into the process as well. And we have some ideas about how to bring that into the fold um, operationally as well. That's great. Yeah, humanity-centered design, I think, is uh, is I think it hits home a lot a lot better. And you're right. I mean, anything that is effective um, will get appropriated by people who want to be on the bandwagon. You know, it's like it's like um, uh, you know, uh, say Nike or someone celebrating Gay Pride Month while at the same time having children labor in factories. Right. You know, so you know what I'm saying like it's like there's like there's like but we're good people don't pay attention to this other thing but we're good people and so people say human human centered design as a and the thing is like yeah the difference between is this lip service you know am I am I holding this cross or do I hold these beliefs to be an embodied piece where I will I will sacrifice profit for the principles that I hold um, which is part of when you're talking about human centered design is uh is how long here's just something to communicate i want to build them i have the greatest eye ever and by the way going to your mom is never the place to start with human-centered design asking your mom about are what... you saying my mom's not human is that what you're trying to say right now? I, I'm, I'm saying she's not the right human she's a good human she's, she's a wonderful human she's just not the right human for the job okay, and people go, hey mom what do you think about this idea and she's like what you know that's that the is uh there's not the person to go to um yeah but if you if you look at it and say, okay, I want to build this this application, whatever it could be, you know, like how much time do you think should be as as just a ballpark should be invested before the actual building of the code process, right? The I'm gonna go write some code because a lot of people, uh, from what I've seen uh, with a lot of uh, people that are um, just getting into technology, like I uh, some. some people that know is they'll just they'll have an idea and they'll just say the idea They're like let's just build yeah. that right or they'll like not even sketch it out like it'll be like a like a like a not even back on a napkin they'll say let's do this and they're like, okay well we got to go through this whole process and they, and they 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 devalue that whole process because it's not 
the code and the code is the valuable thing because they want something that they can own. They want IP, they want something legible. So, so yeah. what, how would you explain to them how much time they need to invest to get ready to the actual code yeah. coding stage? So the first thing I'd say was it's hard to imagine with software, but if we bring that architectural metaphor, it makes sense. And I would say what you're doing is you bought a plot of land. You thought, Hey, maybe we could build a house here. And on day one, you showed up with the concrete foundation and the bricklayers. Like you hadn't even decided on the shape of the house or where the plumbing is going to go, or you haven't thought about anything. Mm -hmm. And you've got the bricklayers throwing bricks down and laying a foundation. Like they're like, what shape foundation? You're like, well, make it like a trapezoid, I guess. I don't know. Right. And then like, <laughs> next thing you know, you've got this Frankenstein house with no plumbing. You forgot a bathroom on the first floor and people are falling out the window to their like breaking their legs. And you're like, okay, we probably should have thought about this first. Now as to how much time, yeah, it's yeah. a really, really great question. Actually, I haven't been asked that one. And I think it's really great because there's no one answer, mm -hmm. but it, let's just frame the conversation in terms of risk, reward, and consequences. Okay. Because if you just go to that site and you start building, the risk of failing is extremely high. The risk of reward is extremely low. Like the chances of reward are extremely low. The risk of unintended consequences, like the, the lady falling out the window or the guy falling out the window, are very high. Now, you're never going to do a human-centered design process where you have certainty of success. That's never going to happen. But what you can do is if you invest as little as a week, I would say, as possible. And I'd say the first week is probably the most impactful week, the biggest bang for your buck. So if you've just got a week, you can bring the risk of failure down. You can bring the chances of reward up and you can bring the chances of unintended consequences down. Now, if you've got a month, there's some kind of more involved methods that I would bring to the table that could actually push that even further. And so often like, you know, it, for something that's like a total early stage founder, we don't have a ton of bandwidth and budget. We need to get cooking ASAP. I think a week is your bare minimum, like to just do a week. And we can talk a little bit about some of the processes we do in that week. I think for most organizations, a month is reasonable. And then when you talk about an organization or a feature or a product that could generate massively impactful unintended consequences, but also massively impactful reward, three months is reasonable, right? Like you're talking about like Facebook launching a whole new newsfeed, like literally when they press the red button, there's going to be like billions of people using it. They might do a year of discovery to make sure that this is going to be successful, but also to mitigate those unintended consequences. What is How does this work at scale? How does this work as we roll it out? So it's a sliding scale. I know you probably wanted a specific answer, but I think the answer you were really looking for was what's the minimum? Yeah. I'd say the minimum was like a week. Well, I also want to set the framework because when people get these ideas that they want to do something and, and you know, because I've, I've just, I've seen people, uh, so I've, I've run a lot of virtuality communities and developments. I've run a whole bunch of virtuality hackathons and stuff like yeah. that. And I've seen people come in and like, I've got the greatest idea ever. I'm like, what's that? They're like, I want to do a VR mall. And they're like, it's going to be the best thing ever. And I was like, oh, and but, but that's as far as they've gotten in the thought process yeah. and trying to get people to unpack that and actually go through a process that allows them to get clarity. And then also something that's testable without writing code is a, yeah. is a, is a tricky bit for people because a hackathon is like the exact opposite. I want to hack something and build something that without much thought or whatever. But if you actually want to build something that, that actually provides value besides the sheer joy you get from creating it and actually serving other people, there, there's that, that kind of arm in arm step process to go through everything. So I was just curious about from your perspective, um, what that looks like, because people, 
some that very much discounts the design process. So that's that's yeah. reason I want to want to address that along the way. Um, for you, like, do you have any like memorable moments or things? So it's as you're building out products for people. Was there was there moments when you saw an impact that you had on someone's life? Did you see an effective change, which is you, for the speaking of the humanity of an actual customer or a user where you saw them come in and then you actually saw a transformative change that they went through? Can you speak to any of those case examples where you can talk about real impact that something and, and you don't have to name a brand or anything mm -hmm. um, or if you want, you can. Uh, but just in terms of uh, more of the story of transformation that you're enabling people to go through. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking about a couple of projects in particular here. I just have a list here that I can I can reference and I want to make sure I start talking on a really nice example. Um, yeah, I think one of the ones that might be worth sharing is that we did a project for Koru Mindfulness, and this is great. Um, this great author and teacher by the name of Holly Rogers, who created a program called Koru Mindfulness, which is the kind of the, the most well-known meditation program for like university and college students. She likes to say 20-somethings who are like in that transitional juncture. And, you know, the founders aren't super technical, like Silicon Valley type people. And the students are used to, you know, a world where you press a button on your phone and GPS leads a car right to your exact location, you know, like, the, so you've got this situation where, yeah. you know, they're trying to teach these really sort of deep practices and they're looking at potentially creating an app. And in that process, we were able to like really empower them to remind them that you don't have to be a technologist to come up with those back of the napkin ideas. Mm -hmm. It's just that your first one probably isn't great. And so what I often tell designers and what I tell entrepreneurs and founders and, and teachers to do is to really fall in love with the problem more than the solution. So forget the VR mall, that's a solution, right? What is the problem that you're trying to solve with that? And when you do that, not only do you start to, first of all, calibrate your mind for empathy and compassion, like we're here to help people with technology. How do we help them? How do we help them with a specific problem they're having? And often you'll see like immediately the VR mall person is just like, I don't, I don't know if this solves any problem. And it's just gonna take me, you know, like that's not, not that great an idea, actually. Yeah. But yeah. you know, and like you can speak their language and say, listen, no one's gonna no one's gonna download it if it doesn't solve the problem, right? But the other thing is that when you fall in love with the problem, it allows you the bandwidth to pivot through solutions. Mm. And so what was great about this project was it was so clear what the problem was. We have these amazing teachings and when people go through the course like at duke university at these major universities they have an incredible experience but a lot of people aren't engaging enough because it's it sort of feels like just a didactic lecture it's a, not a part of the world that they inhabit mm. and so that problem was really ripe for us and we got to explore many different ways we can solve that problem just in paper sketched like a hundred different potential solutions and app ideas and screens. And, you know, we weren't in love with the problem. We, were, we weren't in love with the solution. We were in love with the problem. We did all that. We narrowed it down. We made like a rapid click through prototype and we tested with these students and these students, like we basically were kind of like sitting in one room, observing them as they interacted with the prototype. So we hadn't written any code yet. They were just looking at basically what's a storyboard of the future app experience. And we're watching them interact with this. And it was just a kind of light bulb moment that like, 
people, 20 somethings are living in a very different world than these two founders were living, right? Their whole life is technology and social, and it's like dominating everything they do. And so they had all these questions about like, do I really want an app associated with my meditation program? Like, you know, it feels like at odds, but then when they saw certain screens and I won't say what they were about certain concepts, they were like, this is what I want my phone to do for me. And like, we had this light bulb moment. So we went through the whole process, the team over there, like developed the app, they created the app. And now they're seeing that their students are actually like much, much more engaged. And like, what's amazing about a five-star review for a project like this, it's not like a five, like five stars. It was really easy to order my tacos on this app, you know, check, right? It's like five stars. I'm like happier than I've ever been. Five stars, I feel way better able to handle the stress of school. Five stars, I'm a lot more forgiving of like my parents when I go visit at home. Like you read those and you're just like, this is what, this is the role the technology can play in our lives. Like if we play our cards right as as a society, as a tech sector, we can make all of our projects feel this way. There are so many things that we can do and there's so much possibility. But if we're just in love with our solution, like, whoa, dude, a VR mall would be cool. We're not going to get there. But if we're in love with like "Mm, 20 somethings need this more than ever, but they're not connecting with it. How do we make it work with them? And we stay open to lots of different ways to do it. We follow their guidance on which way to go. I think the sky is the limit of how like technology could change the game and we could change the game for technology. I love that because I mean, because you're meeting them where they're at and the, the challenge is we have our own like internal models. And then if you're not in the same age group as these people that you're servicing right like i remember my niece had a piece of paper and she was trying to swipe on the piece of paper right and she's trying she's like it wasn't working right and she didn't understand why the swiping on the paper wasn't working and i was just like wow wow she just it's just Mm -hmm. it's that's but that's her world they're never gonna know they're never gonna know what it's like not to be surrounded by technology where you have all of these things at a click of a button, which pros and cons with all those things that come around it. But but you're right, having that, having a to be able to read a five-star review that said this actually made me better, versus sometimes you have a relationship um with an app, almost like almost like that uh toxic ex-partner in your life. <laughs> where you're like, you're like, I can't put him down. I hate this. Ah, why won't you do what I say? Kind of thing, or whatever, whatever the thing might be. But you, yeah. but, there, but, but you also have that that relationship versus a friend that makes you feel heard, makes you yeah. feel seen, makes you feel loved. Like there's there's so much power um, in that in that process. Um, do you have like for yourself personally, like how do you personally stay armored up for the day? I mean, you seem pretty zen, chill, cat. <laughs> you know, was there like do you like? For you on your day-to-day basis, I mean, do you use technology for the mindfulness? Do you what what does it look like for you to kind of to kind of keep this state? Yeah. So I mean, I've been practicing mindfulness for a little while and I've gone on several long retreats and I've had big moments of transformation and change. And I don't mean that in some kind of esoteric way, just like you know, deep realizations and shifts and things like that. And that's something that feels like I can carry with me. Um, three years ago, I became a dad and all of my routines got flipped over, you know, like I just, you know, I remember the year before we had my son, like I had finally hit that like routine of like four or five times a week, waking up in the morning, doing yoga, meditating, 
calibrating for the day, eating a good breakfast. And then of course my son comes along and it's like, I don't even know what's going on. But you know, I think it's a good lesson for us because life always throws things in the way. You're always falling off these horses. You're always getting back on. Like I did things like I used to meditate a little bit through my son's bedtime routine because we had no other time in the day. And I would just like, it was good for him to see me in that calm state. And it was a place where I could sort of sneak it in. And so I'm always trying to find ways to kind of work in the routine because to me, it's like habit is not about willpower. You don't just like force your habits. Like, I'm going to meditate. Like that's not the approach that's going to work here. Like, especially long-term, you need to be sort of self-compassionate. You need to build those habits and rely on things like your environment. So for example, environmentally, one rule that I really push for people to explore is not having any internet in the bedroom as a simple rule to just sort of, it just forces your bedroom to be an environment of solitude and quiet. It forces your bedtime routine to be a little bit more natural and organic instead of an alarm going off and then you immediately see the news headlines, right? And then there's also elements of, you know, working things into your routine, like when you're trying to learn how to practice meditation for something or to journal, that like actually carving a space in your house for this. Like I keep my journal at my desk here and, I also tether my phone at my desk here. So yeah, there you go. So when it's bedtime, like it'll be like, you know, 10 o'clock or something. I can't just take my phone into my bedroom because I don't let that happen. So it forces me to say intentionally, I've got to put my phone away. So I go into my office, put my phone into my journals right there. So I sit down at my desk and I do a bit of journaling and, you know, like it's an environmental cue so I kind of try to offload those things as much as possible. And then there's one other thing I'll say. I'll actually show it to you, if you don't mind, for those of you who are watching on video. But I have a habit tracker, um, which, hold on, is this going to work? Yep. So here's my habit tracker. And I track things like breath work and yoga and going for a run and going for walks and biking and stuff like that. And I track it every week. So, you know, I've got some of those, like, habit routines. But you'll notice... The second one from the bottom says enough meditation. So I don't track how much I meditate. I don't track how many minutes or how many sessions I do. I just have that there so that I'll ask myself the question, have I been meditating enough? And if I haven't, then I'll meditate a little bit more. But like, I, you know, you see what I mean? Like I'm balancing the quantification with a kind of self. I give myself the freedom to just be like, you know what? I've done enough, check. And just like, that's fine. That's okay. So for me, I walk this line between like rigid structures and environment, but also being really self-forgiving so that it doesn't become a source of just negativity in my life. Because that ultimately I've learned down the road, it doesn't create a sustainable habit or lifestyle when I'm just, oh, I didn't meditate enough this week. I didn't work out enough this week. I need to bring a lot of love and compassion and excitement and enjoyment and inspiration to the process. So I find ways to do that. Hey, Dylan, I'm losing your sound. I don't know if it's here. Oh, can you hear me now? Okay, oh, I can uh, hear you now, yeah. I lost a beat there for a second. Sorry. No, Thanks for the heads up on that one uh, and, and the feedback. Um, so what, what I'm saying by that is uh, you you have this human-centered design approach where you're, you're, you recognize that consistent habits are important 
but you need to be flexible with the actual habits themselves. And turn, otherwise, you're going to have this like break where you snap and you're like, and just like I, too much structure and you throw it all <laughs> off. And you're like, nah, and you, and you run, you know, naked into the woods or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're, whatever. Yeah, naked, you're run about, naked yeah. into a, a Netflix and a bag of Doritos. More like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm never meditating ever again. <laughs> the, uh, that whole, like, I'm going to meditate that. Uh, I did it first a, a long time ago when I was, I would get mad at myself about not meditating the right way back in the day. And I get yeah. so like, I need to meditate. I'm distracted. I'm so distracted versus now I just use it as when I recognize that I'm like, Oh, this thing keeps coming up again. I need to pay more attention to this because this is a thing. What do I need to, it's like, it's like, there's like the, my internal brains knocking on my head going, Hey, you need to pay attention to this. Quit avoiding this. Like this is what you yeah. need to do. So I love that human centered design where you just, you're looking at your habit patterns and you're, you're creating systems and frameworks to create it flexible. And you say, okay, here's my goal. My goal is peaceful night's sleep. Right. And, and the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to set up these patterns along the way that will optimize the chance, not only that I get that result now, but it's also a long term effect over time that will stack and kind of, but you're using that human intuition going, okay, is this, is this enough? This is enough. Five minute meditation. It's good. It's good. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when you, I started, one of the, I had that sort of phase uh -huh. a little bit too, where I was really like overexerting. Uh, but I had a, you know, like in, kind of beating myself up, like I got to meditate more. I got to check this off my to-do list, which is so, I don't know, so characteristic of the West, like that we would approach a practice like meditation, like we'd put it on our like task list and like <laughs> check it off, you know. But one of the things that I did was I set up a cushion. This is not one of our old places, but I had a cushion near the bed and I set the intention that every day I would take it, I would sit there for at least one breath, just one. And it was like, it was so good because it was, there was never an excuse not to do it. Like it was just so easy to do. And it was so easy to get that win. And that win was always exciting. And I was able to say things like I meditate every day, even if I literally meditated for one breath, but it just was, so, yeah, exactly. But it was just so much celebration. And what kind of happened was that became a kind of spot for me. And there were days where I meditated one breath. There was days where I did 50. There were days that I did 500. And there were days that I sat there and then I pulled up a guided meditation and like, you know, and I, I've reached this point where now I can honestly say like when I get a rare like day off or something mm -hmm. and I'll sit in my meditation cushion and this is some total of this habit work I've done, but also the deep retreats I've done, that I'm excited to explore the world of meditation. Like I sit there and I'm like, what do I want to do today? And I sit for five minutes to be like, where am I at? And then I'm like, hey, maybe I'll like listen to an inspiring talk from a teacher or maybe I'll just go on the balcony. I'm the kind of person who like, I mean, you probably saw the guitar in the background here. Like sometimes if I like can't focus, I can't get the enjoyment. Like I'm just feeling like I don't want to meditate. Mm. I'll sit down like on my meditation bench. I'll put in these like giant headphones I have somewhere and I'll listen to like an album, but I'll do it again with that activist sense of like attention. Like I'm not going to think, I'm not going to, I'll let myself think, but I'm going to keep my attention as much as possible focused on the sound of this music and the way my body and my emotion lights up to it. Like it can be a playground and a fun sandbox. It doesn't have to be this like strict, like whip yourself on the back so that you force yourself to meditate, you know? And that's one of the big, like one of the things I've noticed about this um, transformation work is that uh, it needs to be fun. You need to have yeah. some sort of like, it needs to be enjoyable. Cause like after a while you're gonna like, you're not gonna enjoy 
yourself going through the whole process because if you're not having fun that the, the longevity of something's going to die pretty pretty quickly like yeah like, for, like yeah so i think well that ties back to me for like the conversation we had earlier about design and work and stuff like that mm -hmm. i've reached the point where like those five-star reviews of profound shifts and the impact on the products that we're putting out mm -hmm. with my team and our partners that are helping people in so many ways like, it's just so fun. Even if like, quite frankly, everyone on my team and myself could make probably more money working for some giant Silicon Valley company. And, you know, it's definitely an option for all of us, but I don't know if it would be as fun as like the smiles on the face and the reviews that you get when you work on something that's transforming people. And fundamentally, I think we're all aligned with this cause of how important well-being is for our future and how it ties to causes like climate change and inequality and injustice that like when you find that stride that it's fun to work in service of other people to be kind and compassionate to other people that's what we need more of in this world and that's what we're hoping to create that's beautiful and then in terms of the, the your company and what you're doing is it primarily because design is a uh it's a broad term um in terms because you could do there's there's narrative design there's ux ui design there's mm -hmm. there's a there's uh, uh program design um primarily with your company and you are, are you are you doing is it is it ux ui design is it is it program design is it like curriculums or is it like what is what are the areas that you guys specialize in yeah you got it right ux research ui design product design service design as well as curriculums and creating like meditation programs and mm. you know great content for for wellness programs and things like that Okay, cool. Just checking. When, yeah. when people say design, it's, it, it could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Oh, I know. It's, it's that, true. So, fashion so design. Like wanna, yeah. yeah. Fashion design. I made, yeah, I yeah, made yeah. this shirt. I made this shirt. <laughs> See? <laughs> I feel it. I feel soothing. I put a little palm trees on it, so I feel good, you know? That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So, okay. So, with your with your company, then, what is what is your like, holy grail thing? Like, what do you what do you hopefully hope, hope to create with the still ape? By the way, I love the name, still ape. Uh, oh, but what, it is awesome. So what, like, but what's the overall Holy grail for, uh, uh, the still ape studio. So the Holy grail would be, um, diverse access points to mindfulness, compassion, and well-being. that, you know, like that are as diverse as the people who need them. So I think what I've learned in this space for over a decade is that unlike something like e-commerce or transit or travel or something, the space that we play in is not a one size fits all. People have different life experience, different philosophical leanings, different, you know, generational trauma, like different family contexts, religious contexts. But people everywhere, there are some commonalities in terms of what we're trying to achieve around wellness and compassion and that sort of thing. So to me, the role for design is that we need to find those unique audiences that are being underserved by the current access points or not serve mm. deeply enough and tailor different access points to those things. So to me, the Holy grail is a world where there isn't just like one superficial meditation app that everyone uses that doesn't go very deep, but there also just isn't one deep experience that, you know, you have to fly to the jungles of Peru to have, you know, but instead we have a curated like library of tools out there and, expertise on how to guide someone to the right tool so that everyone can go on the journey they need to mm -hmm. find again well-being in a sense of one's individual well-being like self-care 
you know, mindfulness in the sense of clarity of vision about what's going on, like in the immediate environment in the world and compassion and care in a sense of taking care of other people and seeing this big human family we're a part of. To me, so many of our political and social and economic issues are tied into the issue of people being well. Quite frankly, if you think of your, whatever example of sort of person that you see as a bad actor in the world, and you try to understand and picture that person as a child, you might recognize like the life circumstances that they have had that have led them to be this way. And that if we want long-term change, we need to change the situation of the life circumstances that people are in. And the more that people are growing up in a healthier society from a mental perspective, like a mind perspective, the better chance we have at easing some of this polarization and this conflict and this excessive greed and inequality and all these things. So we're, you know, we need we need people fighting on all aspects of this battle, but we're uniquely positioned to create those and design from a very intentional way, design those access points that are as diverse as the people who need them. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking at it because I mean, like with life, it's just, there's a bunch of different things that you can go on. You're creating the meaning by applying the story to life and what you want to do, whether it's flying out of the jungles of Peru or meditating with people on zoom. I mean, whatever, but those are, but there's vastly different, similar resulty things at the end. And it's, but it's also, it's, it, it matches people because you're going to be at a different place for a different person at a different time and they're a different situation. And so you want to say, okay, there, there is no excuse because there is a billion options. You just got to pick, pick a thing that you want to go in that resonates with you and then just go along that path and then provide that for anybody and everybody that wants to really be able to kind of reconnect with themselves and be mindful and be aware and be connected. Um, that's, that's, that's beautiful. If that is the Holy grail, then, then what is, what is the big dragon that you have to slay to make that happen? Like, what is, what is the thing that you don't know if you're, if you can defeat, right? You're going to go through the belly of the whale on this one. So what does that, what does that look like for you? Good question. So one of the challenges that we face is that quite frankly, the, the types of things that we are talking about mm -hmm. often feel a little bit like eating your vegetables. <laughs> And the things that people, myself included, like I told you, I grew up as a gamer, like the things yeah. that are so fun and engaging, like it's so easy to binge watch Netflix and stuff yeah. like that. So one of the big challenges we face, and it's a dragon, so I don't know quite how to slay it yet, but I assume yeah, there's yeah. elements of culture change and there's elements of like design progress and element, but to create some of these access points to be like, not feel like eating your vegetables, but instead feel like as fun as some of the other engaging elements. And I could cite some examples of things that I think have broken through this, this ceiling. Yeah. So I know it's possible. And we're often working on things and trying to make, like often we go into our partner organizations and they're so eat your vegetables. They're just like, we got to get out there and we got to tell people that this is what they need to do in order to be happy. And, and we're always like, you go do the research and people are like, no, I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. Like if you go on the street right now, everyone knows they should exercise every day and eat healthy, mm -hmm. but who's doing it? Yeah. Right. So we yeah. this is where design has incredible power, where whether we design our environment in our personal lives or design tools for people, we can make things fun and engaging. And we can, like you said, like make it fun, right? Make it kind of like narrativistic, make it a journey. And there's so much potential. And like, you know, if I could sum this up in one easy way, if you think about how far design has come, like uh -huh. today's video games, today's apps, today's computers, today's phones compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago. With people like me and my team and my, our partners in the world, 
the question I ask for you is where do you think wellness technology is going to be 20, 30 years from now, right? In terms of leveraging our full potential as human beings, helping you as an individual, but also your community be who you want to become to really live to that full potential. The sky's the limit and there's so much potential here. And the, the funding is starting to come into our space and like, yeah. So I think the big dragon is like, that's, that's the dragon that we're dealing with. Making the vegetables taste like candy. That's what, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. That's your dragon. Yeah, By the way, I totally it. agree. By the way, when, I, when you said that, I, it just, it triggered with me because like I have one client that all he wants to do is uh, we're making this like fun game. It's also mindful, but it's also fun. But all he wants to do is the fun stuff, but we've got to go optimize. We've got to do, we got to do things. So like the thing I constantly tell them is you got to eat your vegetables, man. And he's like, I don't want to. And it's just like, but, like, but we need to, we need to optimize things. There's things that we have to go through. And he just wants to go and he goes, who wants to play? Let's go. And yeah. so I was like, hold on guys. We've got to go through these steps. So when you said that to me, um, it was, uh, I, I definitely felt a, uh, a resonation, like uh, resonated with that, that, that one, statement. One point of clarity on that. It's like, you know, it's, I thought it was really interesting what you said about making the vegetables taste like candy. Yeah. So there's a fundamental nuance that I want to put in there. Right. Yeah. Because we as a society keep, you pointed at this earlier, we keep mixing up pleasure and fulfillment, mm -hmm. right? We think candy is going to, because it's pleasureful, but actually there's a, there's a strange joy that we get when you eat your vegetables. When you, The hard part is actually eating them. But once you've like eaten your vegetables for a week, we get this sense of fulfillment. It's like climbing the mountain. So to me, when I look at the wellness technology, I don't want to make it seem like candy. I don't want a candy crush meditation here, right? <laughs> like the idea is when you get people to sort of climb that mountain, mm -hmm. they endogenously feel an incredible sense of fulfillment that is much deeper than the candy crush could ever provide. Like someone who is like actually successfully built like a calorie counting habit and lost 10 pounds using like my fitness power or whatever. Mm -hmm. is feeling so much more profound and lasting joy and fulfillment than if they spent all that time playing Candy Crush. So that's oh, yeah. what I'm talking about. It's not disguising it like candy. It's like, how do we tap into getting those people, guiding them to that mountain, giving them the tools they need to climb it, but they need to climb it themselves so they can feel that fulfillment. And that's what we need. You want to inspire them to put in the effort. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. And get, get them to go through it. Uh, that, and that's, that does make a lot of sense. But part of that, yeah, is, uh, it's a, and, that, and that is the challenge because that's proper design. I mean, that is proper design. Like, how do you how do you create yeah. that internal urge in somebody to get them to go climb up a mountain on the other end? And there's, I mean, there's different ways to do that. I guess that's why you mean having those different points of access. So I understand yeah. it's not not everyone, you know, for me and you to get like a, a, a I don't know, like a a bottle of shampoo for me and you is probably not going to do a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not going to go very far, but for some ladies that <laughs> maybe get some beard cream for us, but like, but for other people, like, but for some women that they, you know, they, it, it mean the world. So understanding that you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a match for everybody. Um, that makes a yeah. ton of sense. Let me put that in tech terms, right? Not yeah. everyone, we talked about social media at length here. Yeah. So it's a good example. Not everyone wants to share their Nike run 10 K like run with a map and stats on social media. Not everyone wants to do that. Either they don't want to run, they don't care about fitness or they don't want to share it or whatever. But for the people who do, social media, technology, wearables and all that stuff, the Nike Fuel Band and all that are facilitating an incredible wellness journey for those people. And so we're looking at a family of things like that where there's like, you know, in business terms, product market fit, but in wellness terms, like a tailored 
solution that fills the exact gap that someone needs. And they're out there. And like, you know, like there's so many things out there that are filling that gap for people. But in our traditional mindset, we keep batting our heads against the wall, trying to scale individual solutions up for everybody. But that's not how it's going to work. It's going to work with the family for all of those different people that want to use things in different ways. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah, because it, it it needs to be the right fit. It's like it's like personalized medicine, right? Personalized yes. wellness, right? So that's, exactly. that's, that's what we're talking about, personalized wellness. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Jay, this has been an amazing podcast. I really enjoyed chatting with you on this on this whole journey of conversation. Um, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before they can before you tell them how they can get a hold of you? Um, yeah, I think maybe what I'll say is sometimes, you know, Dylan, like you and I will talk and we'll get high lofty about these ideas, but going back to that activist point Mm -hmm. that it's like in our society, in order to change some of the like unhealthy relationships we have with technology, we're probably going to have to follow something like the smoking cigarettes model, where we're going to need some science to clarify what's going on here. We're going to need some regulation to, to sort of like, you know, manage some of the potential nefarious actors here, but we're also going to need the change in our individual lives, the cultural change where you like go to your family and you're like, you know what? I don't think we should be smoking anymore. And you start making changes in your own life. So to me, it's like as lofty as we get change comes from within. And I mean that. So, you know, it's one thing to go on and talk about all this stuff, but if you are having an unhealthy relationship with technology in your life or in your family, that's a great place to start to start this process of really experimenting, like in the laboratory of your own home and your own experience, you can start to explore some of these concepts about what a healthier relationship of technology might look look like. And very quickly, you'll start to see that radiate out to the work that you do and the impact that you have on the world. So I highly recommend like not getting paralyzed by the big concepts of this conversation. And remembering if you sit on that cushion and take one breath, you are starting on the activist path to reclaiming your mind in a world that's constantly trying to take it from you quite literally. Yeah. That's beautiful. And you're right. It, it is. It's just, it just start with you and then build out yeah. from there. Don't worry about all the, the, the crazy bells and whistles. Um, yeah. And if people want to get a hold of you, Jay, how do they, how do they find you? Um, I write at uh, attentionactivist.com. So you can subscribe there and follow along. And then stillake.com is the company website and jvdrthemyname.com is just some more ideas and info about me. Beautiful, Jay. Yeah, and I like to go on Twitter, too. Yeah, on Twitter. Nice. You know, tweet tweet at the guy. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate your time. Have Have a blessed and beautiful day. And I will see you in another reality. Okay. See you then. See you, brother. Take care. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.